Hey there, besties. After eight years, we're pretty excited over here to announce that the official BFF.FM app is now available to download. Take Best Frequencies Forever with you on your mobile device, on your tablet, your cell phone, whatever you want to call it. Stream the live feed. You can catch up with your favorite DJ's past shows. You can check out new genres. And you can even pop on a podcast for your daily whatever it is you do every day. So grab it today in the App Store or on Google Play. Just search for BFF.FM. BFF.FM is based on a simple model. We do something really well, and then we count on those who appreciate what we do to show their support. Every great song you hear on BFF.FM comes through the support of listeners who appreciate the local community treasure that BFF.FM is, and they want to help ensure it continues playing for everybody. When you consider the power of independent local music, it keeps your day in tune. This vital service, so dependent on listener support, deserves your support today. Donate now at BFF.FM.
habló mi corazón Me dijo que tú y yo Juntos por siempre en amor También yo lo he soñado Fue predestinación Te presentía ya Sin conocerte aún Me imaginaba que tú Eras mi amor de siempre Fue predestinación Yo adiviné Que encontraría un gran amor Como sorpresa Y ya ves Eso eres tú Porque el destino quiso unirme a tu camino Por siempre Gracias a ti mi Dios Por ser ya tan feliz Y por tener a mi amor Que es como yo lo ansiaba Fue yo adiviné que encontraría un gran amor como y ya ves, eso eres tú, porque el destino quiso unirme a tu camino por siempre. Gracias a ti, mi Dios, por ser ya tan feliz y por tener a mi amor, es como yo lo ansiaba. Fue predestinación porque el destino quiso unirnos por siempre. What I do, what I do. What I do, da da do, da da do. It makes no difference if it's sweet or hot. Just 
show because I love music and history and over the course of the next few months I'm going to be dissecting uh, different African-American music genres. You might have seen this infographic called uh, the evolution of African-American music on the internet and if you haven't it's a timeline of all of the genres that African-Americans black people have created. So this show isn't necessarily about identifying which genres came before the other, but rather how all of our genres are interconnected. As you'll notice, especially earlier in history, many of these artists did gospel records or they were musically trained in the church before creating these new sounds. The church was the place where one could train their musical abilities and where music came to them freely. And you know, church is a place of community. Sometimes you're meeting your spouse, sometimes your bandmates, and sometimes your best friends at church. Um, so with that being said, there won't be a linear way to tell this story um, when it comes to African-American music. The sacred tradition, it influences the secular and vice versa, as you'll find out later. And sometimes this happens simultaneously. So if anything, this is more of like a regional story that could be told on a map. Um, <laughs> if you want to visualize um, what we're talking about, I would just, I'm going to link um, my references. I'm also going to get back into another song. Give me one second. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, yeah. Hold off on the song. Before we get into it, though, I do want to say happy Friday. Um, <laughs> for those that don't have to go to work tomorrow or even later tonight, like I'm really happy for you. You get to experience the weekend. Um, but for us service worker girlies, let's make the cash this weekend. Let's get into it. Um, yeah, give me one moment. A great band is more than the sum of its parts. It's a group effort. When talented musicians play together, the power of their music is amplified by the support they give to one another. It's the same at Best Frequencies Forever. Those who share a love of music, especially the music they hear on BFF.FM, come together to support it. What they can do together is more than the sum of its parts. The power of a group of supporters builds a solid foundation that allows BFF.FM to reach out into the Bay Area music community, to support and promote local artists, it allows BFF.FM to plan for the future. 
and it allows those supporters a direct way to be involved in the music they love. You can join this group right now. Just donate now at BFF.FM. Okay, I am back. We are going to talk about the women in jazz. Um, I wanted to take a t- take the time to create this episode because as I was going through like information for our jazz sessions, I ended up kind of like finding out about, about all these different women that like sang or like um, played instruments in these bands of these like guys that we were talking about. You know, whether that be Andy Kirk or Duke Ellington, and um, <laughs> I won't be able to get through them in one episode, but I did want to highlight some of the women who really stuck out to me. Um, we opened with my new obsession, Mary Lou Williams. Uh, the song was called Mary's Idea. It's billed as Andy Kirk and the 12 Clouds, but the track is called Mary's Idea, and we're going to get into that later because like, I would die for Mary Lou Williams if she wasn't already dead. <laughs> like she, like she's the one. She's mother. I said that last uh, last week, but I like I mean that. <laughs> um, she did a lot of arranging for him, and she always didn't always get credit for it either. So that's definitely like what got me thinking about the women in jazz that weren't Billie Holiday or Ella Fitzgerald. Um, I feel like people also forget that like Nina Simone comes like a lot later when you think about like the lifespan of jazz. excuse me so um i want to get into ivy anderson and i feel like it's important to start with her just because she was born in the bay area um when you fact check me you're gonna see that she was born in gilroy but like i get it it's really contentious about like what's considered the bay area but this lady was born in 1904 so she's more bay area than any of us breathing and trying to have that conversation about what's the bay area (laughs) she was in duke ellington's band and um she was the voice in a lot of his early songs um i played it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing and um that's like a huge hit i feel like we've all heard that in some iteration and she was the original vocalist on that song um 
And she also was touring with our boys, Evie Blake and Noble Sissel. And when I say touring, she was a part of their um, play that they wrote. The play was called Shuffle Along, and it's like a really transformative piece of work from the Harlem Renaissance. I don't know for sure because I haven't seen it, but it's been lauded as such, and I could see why. Um, but you know, in the 19, in the early 1940s, she ended up having to leave uh, Duke Ellington's band just because she had health reasons, uh, like asthma and stuff like that respiratory issues that's the word <laughs> so her and her husband they ended up moving to los angeles and she essentially retired um they opened up a restaurant called the chicken shack and i'm not sure if it's still around i wasn't really able to get too much information on it um just because it's like a really general name but ivy ended up wanting to be out of the spotlight altogether and i don't really blame her like i just feel like as we go through some of these stories i could see why touring is so hard on people and um, very en enigmatic, that's the word. <laughs> she uh, passed away in like the six late 60s, early 70s. We don't really know for sure because there are different reports on her birth or her death time. And I kind of like, I get it. She's very enigmatic. You don't really know what happened to her after she retired. Um, so Ivy, we salute you. You paved the way for a lot of girls. And I'm also sure that you had some of the best chicken in LA. Like. I believe it. That's something that I'm throwing out there. I'm going to play some more music for you. I'm going to get into Lil Hardin Armstrong. We talked about her a little bit last week um, when we were talking about Louis Armstrong and him wanting to branch out and do his thing. Well, she was definitely the catalyst behind that. So here's to you. <laughs> I'm just another brown gal that's all full of vim. Well, here's the fix that I'm left in. Now I'm a brown gal. Brown gal. Making my life just a bubble. Not even taking the trouble to even blow the bubbles away. break all conventions and I'm changing all my nights into day baby now the hot blazing sun has turned my skin too dark for trouble to find a way in now lordy I can see folks just laughing at me but I was just naturally born a lazy brown girl, chocolate girl, making my life just a bubble, not even taking the trouble to even blow bubbles away. <laughs> Thank you. 
got the world on a string, sitting on a rainbow, got the string around my finger. What a life, what a world, I'm in love. I've got a song that I sing, I can make the rain go anytime I move my finger. Lucky me, can't you see, I'm in love. Life is a beautiful thing, as long as I hold the string, I'd be a silly so and so, if I'd ever let it go, I've got the world on a string, sitting on a rainbow, got the string around my finger, what a life, what a world, I'm in love. He's listening to the radio show because he asked me about it. He's going to listen. He also gave me uh, an ice cold bottle of water. So, um, shout out to Taha. He's, he's the one. He's uh, the hero for the day. But uh, <laughs> we're going to get into Lil Hard and Armstrong. Um, like I said before, she was married to Louis Armstrong. She wasn't his first wife, she was his second wife, and then he ended up having other wives after that. what we're here for. I just felt like I would, you know, throw that out there because people ask. <laughs> she was born in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, she lived not far from Bill Street. And if I remember correctly, she learned how to play piano from a teacher, like a school teacher, who also played in the church and she would give out free lessons to anybody that wanted to learn. Um, and I think that's fantastic. I feel like... Um, kind of ties into like what O-E-A-S is doing, O-E-A-S-E, the Oakland Symphony, the one I was talking about last week with the kids, that like ties into that, uh, it was just like, let's get the kids playing an instrument. Uh, she graduated from Fisk University, if you don't know, that's an HBCU, historically black university, that's uh, still around to this day, and uh, being a jazz instrumentalist as a woman for her, at that time, it really wasn't common, even though I guarantee you there were tons of women playing instruments at that time. It's 
just, you know, misogyny. Music still is a voice of we're able to have a lot more artists um, that are women and non-binary that are able to kind of create their own thing but back then I feel like these women that we talk about they definitely had to pave the way and um, her and Louie like I said they did divorce in like the late 1930s but she kept on touring um, sometimes she would use the same for promotion promotional purposes um, but she was one of the first female band leaders in jazz a lot of things that you hear today, like strut, not today, but what you heard at the time, like strutting and strutting with some barbecue, which <laughs> I really feel that. And also just for a thrill, which I played a little bit earlier. She says that in the first 28 years of her career, which mind you, her career started when she was a child, like most of the people that I'm talking about in this era. But she wasn't paid royalty, she wasn't paid that well. And so um, I bring up the whole thing with her and Louis divorcing. They were separated for a really long time and they still performed together. And so um, she ended up being in this band with him called the Hot Five Band. And this was like a recording band. They didn't go on tours. Um, I think I might have mentioned that last week that there were kind of different bands that you had at this era. You had people that were territory bands like I was talking about last week. And then you have recording bands, bands or instrumentalists that come together to be a backing band for a vocalist or just to record, you know, um, the standards of that time. And so she played piano and did some arrangements for the Hot Five band. And she ended up getting royalties because of those songs that she recorded. She talks about this in an interview, basically. She's not sure who was the one that did it. She didn't say it was Louie, even though he was in that band. But she said it could have been some of the other guys that they put her name on, um, on the record so she was able to get those royalties. Um, I feel like King Oliver definitely could have done that while they were all in that room together, but he didn't. And I just, it just tying back to why fools get stabbed <laughs> for like those big egos and things, you know? <laughs> um, I feel like she was definitely a very outspoken person. I think that was like a catalyst to why like even Louis Armstrong was able to break away from King Oliver's band and why she was able to do that. same kind of, you know, Jenny Seca, people in Chicago or Kansas City, and um, she also talks about it being overwhelmingly white, and I feel like that's very interesting. I, It's possibly just because of the audience and stuff that was playing. Um, that people are being used to dancing on the one and the, and the three, and jazz was being on the two and the four, so that looks for me like that's also what I'm going to call him after this interview and ask what, what it is, you know? And I thought that was really funny just because um, she uh, is still, she's still talking to him at that point in time, you know what I mean? Um, this interview was conducted, she was like, 
episode is like a lot older, you know. Um, and after a while, I feel like the 1940s or so, maybe the 50s, we end up uh, retiring from music and she goes to, I won't say it's fashion school, but she becomes a tailor. She becomes a master tailor and she learns how to uh, create suits and even like make suits for band members and stuff. Um, yeah. I did read that Ringo Starr, he, uh, <laughs> he remade one of her songs, Bad Boys. I won't play it, but obviously, like, she has the superior, uh, <laughs> the superior version. Um, yeah, it's not too much on her history, which is very interesting. I feel like it's also because, you know, history of black people isn't well documented sometimes, and if it is, it's destroyed or altered. So I feel like there's a lot more that we should know about Lil Hard and Armstrong, but we just don't, and I hope that soon that comes to light. Um, also, like, shouts out to her for just, like, holding that man down and, like, actually being the key to the reason why we know Louis Armstrong as the legend that he is today. I'm sorry. Like, she did that. Like, he has his talents, but she definitely pushed him. I'm going to get into the International Sweethearts of Rhythm. I found this man while researching Big Band and Swing, and it's probably one of my favorite finds as far as history goes, just because, like, there's, like, levels to this. <laughs> so um, the International Sweethearts of Rhythm, they started at uh, the Pineywood School in Mississippi. It's, I'm not sure what the city is called because it was a couple of miles, like 20 miles outside of Jackson, Mississippi. And this is around like 1937 that the band started. The school, Pineywood, is also culturally significant just because um, it's one of the last four all black boarding schools that's still around. And before it was like a boarding school for all kids, it was a school for blind black children and eventually evolved into a school for blind and seeing children. So the International Sweethearts of Rhythm, they started off as a school band that would tour around the South to raise money for the school. But eventually they ended up being so successful that they broke away from the school and moved to Virginia and they did like a lot of shows in like Washington DC and they gained a lot of traction. <clears throat> from their residency in Washington. And the group was an integrated group. There were Jewish girls, there were Asian girls, there were indigenous girls, Mexican girls, and black girls, um, which is pretty much unheard of at the time. Um, so that's where you get the international part because you have all these different people. And Irish too, like white people have like that set, like different, areas like whiteness wasn't just whiteness back then you know like you had indigenous and like you know those kinds of people jewish people polish people um but like i said the band broke ties from the school and it was about 20 girls or so in the band at that time and they were all aged 14 to 19 years old and some of the heavy hitters in this group that like went on to like have careers as adults were Roz Cron, helen jones helen sane Evelyn McGee, Tiny Davis, and their band leader was Anna Mae Winburn. She was from Indiana, and she was a guitarist and vocalist, like an amazing guitarist. Like I said, you don't really hear too much about the female instrumentalists because like, people like to act like they were very rare or like you know an anomaly, but like they were around. She played guitar in like territory bands, and um, she even had a residency in Earl Hines' club in Chicago. Remember the Grand Terrace Ballroom? Um, she did a lot of work in like the Midwest and Southwest region. And when she first joined the Sweethearts, 
she was kind of unsure if she could work with all of these girls. I feel like it wasn't just because of like that women thing where it's like, oh, I don't deal well with other women. It's because they're teenage girls. Like teenage girls are scary. All teenagers are scary as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, but you know, it ended up working out. The chemistry worked out. All of these girls had like a crazy amount of talent. Um, but you know, they weren't booked a lot because they were integrated. People saw them as a novelty. Like I said, to see all these girls playing instruments, people didn't take them seriously because of misogyny. Um, and I don't think you understand like the severity of race relations at the time. It's like mind blowing for people to see all these different ethnic backgrounds coming together in harmony and playing like music. So like I said, it was a novelty. There were also laws in America that forbade like fraternization of that kind. <clears throat> Excuse me. And like when I say laws, you like I mean like you know real legislation, but like societal like unspoken rules. People were like really segregated culturally too. Um, and it's kind of crazy too because like all of these girls could play men and boys under the table, but like the men they actually like they would like rather die than admit like these girls are really good and like that actually reminds me <laughs> i was watching the documentary like this documentary about the sweethearts and there was this dusty ass hater his name is al cobbs and i'm not sure who he is but he says this in the documentary he says and i quote they just didn't have the power when he was asked about their playing abilities and at this point in the documentary like i'm flabbergasted because we have already seen like a good chunk of like what they had gone through and like their talents and like kind of their stories and i'm not sure if this al cobbs is someone famous because i looked him up i kind of searched for him i couldn't find him anywhere so i will say like this next one this one goes out to al because he's a hater i don't know where you are but i hope you stubbed your toe this one right here is from by the international sweethearts of rhythm and it's called don't get it twisted
A great band is more than the sum of its parts. It's a group effort. When talented musicians play together, the power of their music is amplified by the support they give to one another. It's the same at Best Frequencies Forever. Those who share a love of music, especially the music they hear on BFF.FM, come together to support it. What they can do together is more than the sum of its parts. The power of a group of supporters builds a solid foundation that allows BFF.FM to reach out into the Bay Area music community, to support and promote local artists. It allows BFF.FM to plan for the future, and it allows those supporters a direct way to be involved in the music they love. You can join this group right now. Just donate now at BFF.FM. Right, I'm Helena Hambasket, and I hope you enjoyed that track as much as I did. I think it's cute and it's fun, and those ladies are really talented. So, you know, sorry, mom and my family that are listening, but fuck Al Cobbs. What does he know? So, anyways, <laughs> there's some tracks with Anime Woodburn uh, singing, and I'll add those to the extended playlist on Spotify. Um. But as we get into the 1940s, the ladies are getting more traction in the States. Um, and while they're seen as like a novelty band for having the varied ethnicities, they're also putting their lives on the line to make money. And earlier when I said they didn't get a lot of bookings, I should say that they didn't get a lot of bookings in like white clubs um, just because they were integrated. Right. But because of the novelty, they did create a lot of buzz. They, per they performed for mostly like black audiences and they did residencies at like the Apollo Theater and they even sold about like 35,000 tickets uh, for a week long residency at a venue in D.C. And that's pretty substantial, honestly, when you think about it, um, like in Chicago, they sold out the Rum Boogie Club. Remember uh, Joe Lewis's club that Miles Davis used to play at? Um, they were also doing Battle of the Band competitions against Count Basie's band and Fletcher Henderson's band. Um, in the South, it was lucrative. Um, like I said, they were still putting their lives on the line uh, to play sometimes. They would often have to like sleep on their tour bus because they couldn't get lodging as a mixed group. Sometimes they would have to like split each other up. Like the white girls would be able to, you know, go sleep in a hotel if they even had the money to do that. But then the other girls had to like sleep on the bus. It was like really messed up. Um, and here's what actually like blew my mind. And I learned this from the documentary. I'm going to link the documentary because I think you should watch it. Uh, it's only like 30 minutes. But the non-black members would have to like darken their skin because they weren't allowed to be seen together. Like they talk about this. These are words from the artist's lips, right? Like that's so wild to me. Like I'm not even going to lie. Like because like I would have never thought that there would have been like a reason, like a like a reason, not even saying it's a good reason, a reason for someone to wear blackface. Like I'm not condoning it, but like that's just such a wild concept to me. Um, <laughs> yeah, just like sit in that. But yeah, like I said, they would have to sleep on the buses. Sometimes they would have to hide 
um, some of their band members in trunks to be able to sleep in a hotel so they didn't see like who all was sleeping there because they were an integrated group. Um, the girls also talk about like how they would be really broke and they would have to cancel shows due to like the racially charged disruptions. Um, you know, like they would be rolling into town and they stop for gas or whatever and so-and-so at the gas station sees that, you know, it's all these different mixed girls together. That's not going to fly, you know? If you don't know what sundown towns are, look them up. <laughs> um, but yeah, not to diminish uh, their talents, but I want to talk about like how World War II affected their career as a group. Um, so as so because so many men were enlisting and going into the war, there was a lot more room for uh, bookings. You know, you had more people, um, more women, I should say, coming in and being able to be a part of bands like Louis Armstrong's band, Duke Ellington's band. Not that they never had women in them, but you had more room to do that. Um, bands were also breaking up. And they needed replacement. So it was like a really uh, good time for people to come in or women to come in and play. Like Tiny v Davis talks about Louis Armstrong begging her to be in his band on more than one occasion at that. I She also like met Count Basie and he was trying to poach her, but she never wanted to leave. Like she was just really in her element with it, with the sweethearts. And I can see why though, because like a lot of the girls grew up together and they really had been through like a lot of things together and they probably understood each other's playing styles and they really just had like amazing chemistry. So yeah, with that being said, like their impact and like what they did like in the States kind of trickled over into uh, Europe in World War II. Like you had um, troops writing them letters when they play or after playing like on the radio and stuff and they'd be like, come, come over to Europe. So they ended up being like one of the first uh, integrated groups to tour with the USO over in Europe. They ended up going to Europe in 1945 and they traveled to France, Germany and Belgium. But the experience is kind of bittersweet though because like they got there as the war was ending. So they had to travel through like war zones. And I know that that's not like, I mean, it is kind of wild, but I think about like when you hear about, oh, I'm going to go to Europe. You're like, OK, I'm going to go see some castles. I'm going to go see the Eiffel Tower. I'm going to go see this like really amazing cathedral. And like they're going through these things and it's just rubble. So I know that, that was probably wild for them. Um, but after they returned to the United States, they performed for they performed with Dizzy Gillespie. And um, unfortunately, though, because like guys are back in the picture, they are all moving back over to the States. They weren't getting bookings like they used to. And I'm not going to say that it's like all men's fault for them kind of disbanding. But by like 1946, the Sweethearts had been a band for 10 years. So you had some of the members that were trying to just like do a different life path. Um, and by 1949, they like completely broke up. They broke up because money issues, because there were deaths in the band. And because the new style of jazz was gaining popularity. But there were a lot of ladies that still played music after uh, the band dis disbanded. <laughs> Helen Jones, she was a trumpeter. She grew up in Pineywood. Or she grew up in the Pineywood school before going to travel with the Sweethearts. And she was like one of the original members of the group. She ended up moving to Omaha uh, with her husband. And she briefly played in the Omaha Symphony Orchestra. But uh, she was fired because the orchestra realized that she wasn't 
white. And after that, she ended up becoming a nurse in the county that she lived in. And if you're wondering how she was able to like pass for white, like I'm not going to get into it because like it's such a heavy like and layered topic, but you should definitely get, get into some academia. If you want to get into like some media, The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett is a really amazing book about that, about two characters that experience that. You have The Imitation of Life, both versions, but I highly recommend the version with, I think her name is Doris Day and Mahalia Jackson. She's singing in that and that's one of her last performances before she passes away, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then also, because we're kind of in the Harlem Renaissance era, there is a book by Nella Larson that was written in 1920 called Passing about this. And it's also a movie on Netflix with uh, Tessa Thompson and Alexander Skarsgård. Um, but back to Helen, sorry, <laughs> I get on my tangents. She was like one of the last surviving members of the Sweethearts. She passed away in 2020. Um, that was, she was 94 years old. And unfortunately she passed away because of COVID. Um, so RIP to Helen, you, you were a baddie for sure. You also have Violet Burnside. She was a jazz saxophonist and she was really popular in the mid Atlantic region. And then we also have Tiny Davis and I'm really excited to talk about Tiny Davis because I was like really drawn to her when I was watching the documentary. And I'll get into it in a second. But um, when I was watching the documentary and learning about the group, I'm like, okay, it's an all-female band. They were a band for 13 years. There's 30 people in it. Which one of them are gay? Like, where's the queerness? There has to be an element of queerness. Like, there just is. Like, I'm of the school of thought that everyone's a little bit queer. I don't care. I'm not going to debate it. But Tiny Davis, like, she was the one that was out. I will say that much. She was the one that was, like, actually a lesbian. And not only was she like a phenomenal trumpet player, but she was also like a really like she was a thread in the queer community. She was born in Memphis, Tennessee. She joined the Sweethearts after they moved to Virginia. So when they broke away from Pineywood, she ended up like running into them at like a show somewhere in like the East Coast. And she ended up being a part of the band. She ended up forming her own band after the Sweethearts broke up called Tiny Davis and her Helldivers. And they toured into like the mid 1950s and they even did like a couple of jazz festivals too. And I looked around uh, for some recordings on the streaming platforms for her band, but I really couldn't find anything. It's mostly going to be on YouTube or in the physical forms. So um, if you're looking, definitely check YouTube. Don't check Spotify or any of that. And um, her career didn't stop after Tiny Davis and her Helldivers stopped. She was performing into the 1980s. And if I can, I'll do some more digging. I just haven't found too, too much. But back to the queer aspect of it. When I was watching the documentary, I noticed that she dressed really masculine um, while she was recounting the stories of the sweethearts. And even when you watch like old footage of them, she's like one of the only one like wearing pants or like shorts at that, like while performing too. So like that also like that piqued my interest, right? <laughs> Um, she also talks about her experiences and she's in the community because of like the way that she cut her hair, the way that she like dressed. I'm not going to lie to you. Like I'm a part of it. We can kind of game recognize game, but she also tells like anecdotes that you don't have to read between the lines for it either. Um, the doc was made in 1986 by Andrea Weiss and Greta Schiller, and they're two lesbian married filmmakers. They've done films about Stonewall. They've done uh, films about the queer scene in Paris during the early 20th century. 
century. <laughs> like it's very sapphic stuff, um, but also very necessary to document because we don't have a lot of history. I mean, we do, but documentation of that history. So I bring them up because two years later, they actually released a film about Tiny and her partner, Ruby Lucas. And it's called Tiny and Ruby Hell Diving Women. Um, and at this point in time in the documentary that they had released, Tiny and Ruby had been together for over 40 years. And I haven't seen it yet because I was looking for it everywhere where I didn't have to rent it for like $28. But then I ended up finding out that it's on Canopy. So you can stream that on Canopy for free if you have a library card. And um, from what I gather, because I haven't watched the video yet, I'm going to watch it now or in a couple of days <laughs> from what i gather though like they owned a couple of lesbian clubs in chicago in the 50s and into the 70s and i could be wrong about the dates but i do know that they owned at least two lesbian bars in chicago and they gave people like them like me like you know a safe haven to be themselves and i think that that is like outside of the music and like what she did musically like that's also super important like that needs to be talked about more so shouts out to andrea weiss and greta schiller for being able to document that and like you know making sure that their places in history are cemented <clears throat> and by them i mean tiny and ruby and the international sweethearts of rhythm um but if you don't have a library card you can actually watch the international sweethearts of rhythm documentary that i watched on youtube and i can even link it on my twitter uh that's the move with four o's uh unfortunately tiny did pass away in 94 but i would have to say that she lived a pretty beautiful and storied life i feel like she might agree on that but i don't know the lady so i'm not really gonna speak for her too much but it looked like it was a good time i'm gonna play some more songs for you i'm gonna start with diggin dykes by international sweethearts of rhythm Bounce about throwing poise with a kill as she directs all the instruments in general. And Violet Burnside's Mellow Tennis Act in particular as the International Sweethearts of Rhythm laid on us with Digging Dice. Dig. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
around, stop raving about your men. And let me tell you how sweet mine is, though he commits a sin. Cause when my baby makes love to me, it's murder. Now when he turtle doves me, that's murder. Now when he feels temperamental, I just let him have his way. I can only see him twice a week, he's a member of the PWA. Now when my baby caresses me, it's murder. But if he ever dispossess me, I will commit murder. Now if I tell him that he's not mine, he turns into Frankenstein, makes shivers run up and down my spine. That's murder.
FM. Best frequencies forever. Welcome back. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I'm Helena Hambasket. This is What's the Moon. Um, so that last song that I played was by Helen Hume. And uh, she was really interesting to me because... Um, she like, when she didn't want to sing, she just didn't, you know what I mean? Or you don't, so I'm going to tell you. <laughs> so she was born in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and she would sing in the church choir, and she learned how to pay, play piano in the church. And uh, when she was 14, she ended up recording music. This is like late 1920s or so. And... Um, after that, she didn't make another song for 10 years. She decided to complete her high school diploma, uh, become a banker. She was like, you know what, I'm going to just do this working thing. And uh, eventually she ended up singing again because someone paid her the right price. At that point, it was $35 a week. 
I'm not sure what that uh, taps out to, but I bet you like that's $4 million in like 2023 money to be completely honest. <laughs> Cause uh, yeah. Um, and then she ended up moving to uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, and she became uh, the resident singer at the Cotton Club in Cincinnati. And while she was doing this, this is like the 1930s, like 1936 or so. She's making a name for herself, like as you can hear in her voice, like she's a fantastic singer. And Count Basie comes along. He's trying to get her to sing in his band. And he's like, okay, um, I'm going to pay you $35 a week uh, to be in my band. She's like, oh, well, I already made that. So uh, I'm going to just stay here. I don't have to leave my home and my things. I'm not going to do that. so eventually she ends up moving to New York City, like probably like not that, that not that long afterwards. And she ends up recording some more songs, and then eventually she ends up going into Count Basie's orchestra, and she records like a lot of songs with him. She even um, sings in this uh, music festival called From Spirituals to Swing, and I want to get into it, but I'm not going to get on a tangent about it today because it's about the ladies. It's not about the men today. It's about the ladies. <laughs> but um, that was like really influential in valid. What's the word? Validating, validating uh, black music, especially black jazz music. Um, yeah. But after that, she ends up leaving in like 1942. She's like, I don't want to um, sing anymore which is like hilarious to me just because like she's not in it. She doesn't want to do it anymore. She ends up uh, going back home to kind of take care of family too on top of that. But then she would uh, go back to New York every once in a while and sing at Cafe Society. Um, But in the 1940s, like 1944 or so, she ends up going to LA to record movie soundtracks. And um, she even did like a musical film with Dizzy Gillespie. She also toured uh, with the Jazz Philhar- at the Philharmonic for a couple of seasons too. Um, she toured Australia. Like she really ended up doing a lot of things, but like she ended up not. What's the word? She ended up quitting again because her mother got sick. She ended up going to work at like a like I want to say a factory or something like that, and taking care of her family. And then she ended up coming back into singing. Back in in the late 60s, uh, she ended up performing in the Monterey Jazz Festival. She ended up touring Europe again, and she ended up singing like into like the 1970s. And I feel like she's interesting because I feel like a lot of these artists and like what people see nowadays about like celebrities is like you know you're just famous once you have your big break, your big song, you know like. You're swimming in cash and I don't think that that's really the reality for artists even today whether it's black or white like a lot of people have to stop doing what they love playing instruments singing and stuff so they can take care of family because bills need to get paid you know what I mean and so for her I feel like it was a combination of like I'm kind of over this singing thing because sometimes like when you turn your passion into work it stops being fun but then also like I want to take care of my family and I also I feel like she didn't really stop enjoying music and that's what's fantastic about it i like that she was able to kind of dip in and out and kind of what seems like take control of her own career instead of letting people kind of like make these moves for her or tell her that she needs to do these things she died in uh, 1981 
in Santa Monica, California, and she's actually buried at the Inglewood Park Cemetery. If you are one of those people that likes to go see graves, I said weird people. I'm one of those weird people. Last week, I don't want anyone to be offended because, like, I stay at the cemetery. I love it. It's fantastic. Um, <laughs> so I'm one of y'all. Um, I'm gonna get into some more Helen songs, and then we're gonna get into Graciela who also like, I love her, she's fantastic. I'm just learning about her, so I don't have too much information, but I just want her name to be spoken more because it's not spoken enough. Thank <laughs> you. 
tan dulce como tú Sueño con cositas tan lindas Tan lindas como tú Todo lo que ansío es delicia Delicias para ti más tiernas caricias quedarte con amor quiero tenerte cerca y en un abrazo unirnos y así pedirte que estemos toda la vida labios con labios alma como tú sueño con cositas tan lindas tan lindas como tú quiero tenerte cerca y en un abrazo unirnos y alma con been enjoying the tunes. Um, that beautiful voice that we were just listening to is Graciela. She um, was born in Havana, Cuba, and she did most of the vocals for uh, Machito's band. They're actually brother and sister, and um, I don't have a ton on her today, and I do apologize uh, just because um, a lot of the stuff that I found is in Spanish, and I'm still translating it, but I want to get into her in a couple of weeks when we talk about international jazz um, and just like influences of jazz outside of America. So I'll definitely have more information for you. But um, what stuck out to me though about her was A, she's a Virgo. She was born the day before me. Um, B, she's like, she's that girl. Like she's before Celia Cruz, which coincidentally, time out. So, Happy birthday to my sister. Happy birthday, Amari. Happy birthday to my other sister, Alicia. It's their birthdays today. Happy birthday, Celia Cruz. That's tomorrow. And happy birthday, Dizzy Gillespie. Also tomorrow. So now that that's out the way, I just had to say that. <laughs> um, yeah, but Graciela was really interesting to me just because like, it's kind of the same thing with um, Mario Bauza and even Machito, her brother, like they all started playing music, like a part of like symphonies and things like that in Cuba. And then would come over to New York, kind of see how like we were doing it here in the States. Again, these are Afro-Latinos. They look just like me, right? Like dark skin. 
So you think about the Cuban Revolution. They were not being treated well as dark-skinned Cubans, right? So they're coming to New York City in the middle of the Harlem Renaissance. They're seeing black folks. Although the black folks up here weren't really speaking Spanish like that. Some of them were, right? They were still black folks and they were being treated differently. They had more, like there was more opportunity truly to be had here at this point in time. So she ends up following her brother and Mario. Um, and she actually ends up, not that she followed Mario, she ends up following her brother because Mario gets enlisted into the war in like 1942, 1943 or so. Then that's when she becomes uh, like the main singer in the band. Um, and she went on singing well into like the early 90s. I think when Mario Bauza passed away because they were all really uh, big collaborators, she kind of stopped playing music, but not really. She did like the semi-retirement thing. Um, but yeah, she has beautiful music. I'm definitely going to get into her uh, next week, or not next week, the week after next for sure. Um, Cause there's a lot to get into. Like I said, I just need to translate a couple of articles and do like a little bit more thing. <laughs> um, but again, I just, you know, I want to speak about her because she's not spoken about enough. And again, she predates Celia Cruz only by like 10 years in terms of birth goes, but uh, the impact too, like it's just, I could just see Celia Cruz listening to Graciela like at her house I mean like yeah I want to be like her or even having like real life interactions with her because I'm sure they all knew each other just because they were in the same neighborhoods together um <laughs> but I want to take this time to play a couple of other songs and I'm going to get into Mary Lou Williams this one is going to be Beryl Booker and it's called I Should Care I should go around weeping I should care I should go without sleeping But strangely enough I sleep well Except for a dream or two but then I count my sheep well Funny how sheep can lull you to sleep I, I should care I should let it upset me I should care But it just doesn't get me Maybe I won't find someone Quite as handsome as you But I, I should care And I do Thank you. 
someone quite as handsome as you. But I, I should care, and I do. Thanks for listening to What's the Move. I swear I'm going to get the hang of it one day. I promise. (laughs) So I want to get into Mary Lou Williams. I'm not going to lie to you. I might get like a little emotional talking about her just because like she's like, I don't know. I'm not going to get into it. I'm just going to get into her. So I first heard about, about Mary Lou Williams while reading about Miles Davis. And that's like how I fell into the wormhole. Um. She's like the woman who Duke Ellington said was beyond category. Like, let that sink in. If Duke Ellington is saying that you're beyond category, you're beyond category. She's like the musician's musician. She's been around for pretty much, or she was around for pretty much every iteration of jazz that there is. Um, Mary Lou Williams was born in Atlanta, Georgia, but she grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, by the age of six, uh, she was supporting her 10 siblings by playing piano at parties. Um, like a lot of, like a lot of people that we talk about on this show, she was a child prodigy. And by the age of seven, she was known as the little piano girl of East Liberty. Um, when she was 13, she played with the Washingtonians, Duke Erlington, excuse me, Duke Erlington. <laughs> Duke Ellington's, uh, early bands. Uh, I think they were around in like the 30s or so, maybe like the late 20s. Um, But yeah, this is kind of where things like start to kick off for her. Well, not when she was playing with the Washingtonians, but when she turns about like 17, 18, I feel like this is when things start to kick off for her. She marries this man named John Williams in 1927. And he was also a musician and this is why they get along. He also like from what I read and don't hold me to it because, you know, I wasn't there. But he didn't seem to be jealous of the fact that she was a better musician than him. If anything, like he advocated for her and her place in music because he was like, yeah, no, she's really the shit. Like she's the one. Um, I will say he was jealous, but like about other things, uh, definitely not the music. Like he knew that she was more talented than him. And I think that that's what like attracted him to her. 
she was in his band called the syncopators where he was like the band leader and just as she gets her own band together like her being the band leader and like the composer mind you at the age of 19 he john takes a, a job with andy kirk in oklahoma city and in that point in time she's not in the band but she goes with him to oklahoma city and takes a job as an undertaker and if you know me in real life you know that growing up like genuinely as a kid i wanted to be an undertaker it really got me excited reading that she was one <laughs> like that's what i wanted to be as a kid i wanted to do autopsies i wanted to run a funeral home but i also wanted to be like in a punk rock band so like she was kind of living my childhood dream and that's also why i love her <laughs> um and so there's this documentary that i watch about her and she's funny you could tell that she was a witty a witty woman because there's this scene in the, in the documentary where she's driving down a street that's named after her and she's like yeah dizzy called me up and he said girl someone got shot on your street and she was like shut up let me know what's happening on your street i thought that was like so funny because it's just like can you imagine dizzy gillespie like talking to like another legend just being like talking shit like i love it i don't know <laughs> um but yeah <laughs> sorry just thinking about that but so she starts composing for andy kirk's band and then eventually she starts playing with them um but when it comes time to like record in chicago Andy Kirk doesn't invite her to record with them, even though they're playing her arrangements, which is why I played uh, that song at the beginning of the episode, Mary's Idea, because like I said, it's billed as Andy Kirk and his 12 Clouds band, but the song is called Mary's Idea. And I feel like that's really like, um, what do they say? Like a, a, a spit in the face. Yeah, that's the word. It's like, it's like a spit in the face because it's like, you actually, I bet you, those recording sessions she wasn't even there but he's recording the song that she wrote and it's titled after her like the audacity of men i can't believe it um <laughs> she also composed walking and swinging for andy kirk which was like a breakout hit for them and to me like that's like really infuriating too because like she played piano in his band and in swing band piano players are like the key players like they set the tone um it's a position of power if you will in within the band like she's in a position of power but she's not getting that recognition so to speak um and it's wild too because like andy kirk would like belittle her talents and obviously like it's jealousy like who doesn't know a few type of people like men specifically when they see a woman doing well they internalize that as a threat even when these women are using their good fortune to help them out so yeah with that being said she started composing for other people on the side she worked with uh, Jimmy and Tommy Dorsey, who were like two white guys that were in jazz. She composed for Earl Hines, Louis Armstrong. And then remember how I was talking about that white guy last week, Benny? It's Benny Goodman. So she was also composing for Benny Goodman. And he was feeling it so much that he tried to put her under contract and have her write for him exclusively. But she's a smart lady. She did not do that. She was not into it. I also want to talk about mary lou williams's sexuality um she wasn't queer that i've read but she and john had like this kind of understanding they were i'm not going to call it an open relationship but she had romantic relations with other men in the band so that was like tension but he didn't care that she was like 
with other men. It was just like the tension was with the men in the band that she would sleep with. And I'm not going to lie, I found out that her and Don Bias were hooking up and that kind of gagged me a bit because he was like, he was cute. He was cute. And I actually just played uh, that Barrel Booker song. That was with the Barrel Booker trio and Don Bias. That wasn't me being shady, but like, I just thought that was so funny that I ended up putting that in the playlist. That wasn't intentional. <laughs> um, and I really don't know or care what John was doing, but I'm sure... I'm going to end up digging deeper later and find out some letters or find some letters and read those and figure it out. But I do know he wasn't happy with the setup in terms of her messing with people that were in the band. And she says, my only weakness in life was loving someone who I thought was great on his instrument. And I feel like when I was younger, I would have felt that in my soul, like truly. But I'm glad that I've evolved. Like if you play an instrument, actually stay the hell away from me. Even if you're, especially if you're a DJ, if you're a DJ, get away from me. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear anything. <laughs> but yeah, so um, John and Mary Lou, they like end up divorcing, but they're still in the band together. She's still sleeping with different band members. And Andy Kirk has a problem with it. He has a problem with her sleeping with the men, but not the men pursuing her. He says that she's a distraction, tries to put her like under like an obedience contract that's not the right word but that's essentially what it is that just sounds like really intense to say obedience um but mind you the men they didn't get the stern talking to just mary lou so to make matters worse mary lou finds out that andy kirk isn't paying her as much as the men in the band and that's pretty much it for her she ends up leaving in the middle of a tour she just hops on a bus and just like dips and i I know that's like that's the reason why she's a queen to me because if it doesn't serve you just get out I really feel that so um <laughs> I'm not gonna lie to you I have a beef with Andy Kirk and I hope you do too because like he is wrong for that and again family if you're listening I'm so sorry but fuck Andy Kirk that like no I'm not into it I'm not into it <laughs> so in 1942 Mary Lou goes back to Pittsburgh and she starts up her own band. Um, Shorty Baker, who was in Andy Kirk's band, he ends up going back to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, oh geez, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania <laughs> with her to be in this band. And also Art Blakey's in the band too. This is, he's actually like not a huge artist at the time, but he's very seasoned as an art, like as a musician at this time. So it's really cool to see that he's in it too. But the band is short-lived, though, because Mary Lou accepts an invitation to play in Duke Ellington's band. And so did Shorty. So um, Mary starts composing for Duke. And I won't say that it's exclusive, but I will say that she's getting a lot more respect than she has before with taking this new job. She ends up creating her version of Duke's, or it's not Duke's song, it's someone else's song, but he's really famous for uh, performing it. It's called Blue, Blue Skies. And uh, I forgot to mention this, but... In this time, Shorty and Mary Lou get married. <laughs> um, but they end up separating like within the year of like within 12 months of them getting married. And they never divorce. They stay married technically, but they're no longer together. They are still working in bands together. Um, but with that being said, like she does still want to establish herself as her own artist. And while Andy Kirk didn't see it for Mary Lou, like the jazz scene did see it for her. She like, she's a household name at this point. 
but I feel like we're going to get into why you didn't hear about her maybe until today or maybe within the past like few years. But um, yeah, like I said, her and Shorty, they end up breaking up. They never officially divorce. But like because she's in New York City, like that really does wonders for her career and her mindset. Because back in Kansas City and in OKC, she really didn't feel like she connected to people, including other women. And I think that that's because she was a working musician. Like musicianship at this time and even today can be a lot of a boys club and i feel like people also didn't understand her musically including some of the women artists that were around at the time so with that being said like in new york city she really started to flourish she created strong bonds with men and women actors dancers musicians philosophers um she ended up taking a job at cafe society and she says that Cafe Society didn't pay her much, but the publicity was amazing. And I'm going to get into Cafe Society probably next episode when I get to like Bebop and all that stuff. Um, just because like she wasn't lying. Like I feel like they could have truly paid you pennies. And I mean pennies by 2023 standards, not like 1920 standards. <laughs> um, and it would do wonders for your career. Like that's where Lena Horne ended up getting her start. Uh, Hazel Scott, who I played a little bit earlier, um, she ended up getting her start there too. Like people went there to end up getting their careers made. Um, yeah, she was a she was like really a prolific writer. From what I've read about her, like she constantly had arrangements in her head, had a pen and pad with her at all time. Like she would be at a party and she would just like disappear and you'd find her in the coat closet writing like arrangements down like i feel like that was her calling on earth was like to construct new sounds and new arrangement arrangements um and so like in the cross-cultural context of her time at cafe society like in the 1940s hollywood was experiencing a golden age it was booming in a way that it hadn't before um, there were color films, there were a lot more uh, like musicals and like really like showy kind of aspects. Like I feel like they were able to put Broadway fanfare on the screen for other people to see so they didn't have to go to New York to go see them. And so because Hollywood presented like a new dynamic and a way for the public to consume media, it bled into the club scene. And by that, I mean like people were expected to have like a performance aspect like a, a shtick to their uh, to their shows and especially with women too it was like yeah you sing okay well do you also do, know how to do choreography do you know any gimmicks uh do you know any crowd work like can you do crowd work and that's not really everybody's cup of tea and it also wasn't really expected of the men in clubs and so you have people like Lena Horn and Hazel Scott. Like, let's talk about it. They had more desirable features. Like, colorism really does come into play. Um, they were also movie-minded. Um, these women, like, they performed because they wanted to be on the screen, too. Like, they were multifaceted beings. They weren't just for the clubs. They were also singing, like, recording albums and also in films. And by extension, unfortunately, Mary Lou was expected to do that, too. But I think that she's I think that her point was she wanted to subvert the gaze in performing at Cafe Society, even despite this new golden age of Hollywood putting this pressure on her and like intersecting with nightlife. Um, so she didn't play up her sexuality and she didn't put on any more of a show than she needed to. She was all about letting the music talk. Like if you watch uh, performances of 
Hazel Scott, and this isn't shade to Hazel Scott. She does this um, parlor trick type thing where she's playing two pianos at once. Like she has her little gimmicks and like Mary Lou wasn't about the gimmicks. You know what I mean? She still did numbers at Cafe Society though. Like, um, but the guys who pulled the strings in Hollywood and like uh, that kind of scene, they were unsure of her marketability because like, the massage noir, the racist and misogynistic reasons, you know, like obviously that messed with her head um, just because she was a, a dark skinned black woman. She was not seen as marketable or desirable to the ones that that decide that for society. And like, honestly, like I look at her, I look at photos of her and I think she is so breathtaking. She reminds me of like what my great grandmother looked like when she was like graduating high school. She reminds me of what my grandmother looked like when she was younger, like just beautiful you know what i mean like all my grandmothers and i just i see it just it breaks my heart just to think that people didn't see her as um beautiful because she is i'm already getting like a little <laughs> um yeah so i think that that's like still so real with black women artists today and if you want to talk about it more specifically like female rappers I feel like there's a constant battle to retain your originality, to push boundaries, but still keep your lights on at your house. Like we've been talking about that with like a, a couple of the women in the segment. We have Helen Hume. She ended up stopping music for a little bit to take care of her mother. Ivy uh, Anderson, she ended up like quitting because of health reasons and she just wanted to have a normal life. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> but like on top of that too, like the opposing forces to you wanting to push these boundaries and keep the lights on is the societal norms the systemic racism and i'm def definitely gonna have a guest on in the future when we get into our rap sessions because i think about that a lot you know like i was listening to a podcast and they were talking about like how sexy red is pregnant and how people are like well she's at the height of her career why would she do that and they were talking about how they said the same things about cardi b and I'd like remember that it's like when Cardi B got pregnant with culture, her first child, people were like, well, what is she doing? She's ruining career, her career. And like literally if bag chaser was in the dictionary, it would be Cardi B, Cardi's Cardi B's picture, like in the dictionary, because that did not stop her. If anything, that made her more marketable to be like a working mom and showing people that like they could do it all. So I digress. But I'm not I'm not going to get like even more heavier into it. We're going to get back into Mary, Mary Lou, because the struggle is like so parallel to like what she experienced. Um, but again, I think that we can agree that her mission on this earth was to compose beautiful music. And she kept doing that um, while she's doing the Cafe Society thing. Like she becomes the mother of bebop. I'm going to say it like I know that's kind of a like an absolute but i think that she was the mother of bebop and we could we can we could fight about it we could definitely debate about it um and we're gonna get into bebop next week but i just want to set the groundwork she starts hanging around like these all night sessions kind of similar to what was happening in kansas city when she was like a little bit younger just because she's not really finding inspiration because of the fact that like you know systemic racism is a thing and she's not in a place in her career where she thinks that she deserves to be and i think that she deserves to be wherever she thinks that she deserves to be you know what i mean so she ends up hanging out with like the young kids uh the younger crowd is like tad dameron dizzy gillespie um she even links back up with art blakey and then there's you know miles davis they're doing all these all night sessions playing their instruments she's right along with them 
And what they were doing was really piquing her interest because they were elevating jazz into like a sophisticated art form. Um, like the way people were going out, you have nightclubs, bars, theaters, all different types of ways to watch musicians and performers. But like you also have hi-fi recordings coming in too. Um, you can really hear like the instruments that are being played. And I feel like those things kind of combined is why you're starting to get the sophisticated art form because like you're not going to a theater to go see Miles Davis. You're going to like a small club where people are sitting down. There may even be like a little bit of dinner included, you know? Um, so I feel like there are new arrangements being created to like shift with how we're enjoying going out and nightlife and things like that. And even how we're enjoying listening to music. So Mary Lou was advancing ideas about harmony and it was intriguing to these musicians. They didn't call it bebop at the time. She like when I uh, look into what she was calling them at the time, she called them modernists. And I think that that's like really cool to think about because like it is modern. I hear it now and I'm like, yeah, like what bebop was doing. I feel like I still hear now like when I listen to, um, oh my gosh, like Robert Glasper. He's not bebop, right? But I see those elements and that's why I think that they're called modernist at this time. <laughs> Um, but of course, you know, musicians being musicians and people being people, she would hear the arrangements that, or the ideas that she was talking about, like to these fools, like in public, out in the open, out in the wild. But you know what though? She wasn't really tripping too hard about it. Like, because she was in the room with these conversations, like it would be jazz great. Just kicking it at the apartment and they were having conversations about like what direction they wanted uh, Bebop to go into. And oh my God, I genuinely cannot believe it. It is almost 2 p.m. and I'm not even halfway through with her story. I knew this was going to happen. I guess I'm just going to have to bring this back uh, for next week because like her story is so important. I'm like not even in the good part, but I guess it is what it is. Um, I'm going to play one of her songs and uh, yeah, I guess wrap up. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, that sucks. Um, yeah.